Tonight I'm to talk with you on the subject of the purpose of the church. In Matthew 16 and 13, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, others Elias, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to the disciples, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here is the first time in the New Testament, in the Bible, that the word church is used, and yet this is not the first time that the church is referred to. And certainly it was not on this occasion when the idea of the church came into the mind of our Lord. In fact, in Ephesians 3, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul wrote to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the time that man sinned, God knew that he was going to establish the church. In fact, God knew before he ever created man that if man sinned, he was going to save him through the establishment of the church made possible by the death of his son upon the cross. In Ephesians 5 and 25, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul said to Timothy, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. All of these passages talk about the church. So what we're interested in tonight is what is the purpose of the church? In answering that question, I would like for you to maybe take a, a, a card or a notepad and just write down a few sentences. I believe it will help you to remember the lesson, make it more vivid in your mind. The first thing I would like for you to write down is this. Souls are valuable. Souls are valuable. Now, you can find that throughout the Bible from Genesis 1 and 1 right on down to the very last verse of the book of Revelation. The value of souls is emphasized. In Matthew 16 and 26, for example, Jesus said, 
What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? From the time man sinned in Genesis 3, God set about to work out the scheme of redemption. And when I say that he set about to work it out, I don't mean that God did not know what he was going to do. But I mean that God began to develop the scheme of redemption, to bring it into fruition, to make it a reality. For a period of some 4,000 years, God continued to develop the great scheme of redemption until finally Jesus, our Lord, came into the world and gave his life on Calvary to make it possible for the church of our Lord to be established. You want to know something about the value of your soul? Then think about a statement which is made in Acts 20 and verse 28. The apostle Paul said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. We read a statement a while ago from Ephesians 5 and 25 which said, that Jesus gave himself for the church. If you want to know something about the value of your soul, then look at the purchase price. Look at what it cost God to redeem the souls of lost men and women. Our Lord had to give his life in order for my soul to be saved, for my soul to be redeemed from sin. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that I'm to remember that I haven't been redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But he said it's with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb slain without spot and without blemish. God loved me enough that he was willing to give his son to make it possible for me to be forgiven. I have said that maybe there is a sense in which God's giving his son to die the death that he died is a greater demonstration of love than the death of Christ itself. In other words, Christ dying upon the cross may just be a greater declaration of the love of the Father than the death of Christ upon the cross is of the declaration or of the love of Christ. I don't think it'd be all that difficult for me to be willing to give my life for your welfare. But I have a son. I have a daughter. I have a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law. I have a wife. I have two grandchildren. Folks, I, I'm frank to tell you that I cannot conceive of any circumstance under which I could love you enough to be willing to let one of them die on the cross like Jesus died for you. I might be willing to do that. But I don't believe that I could let one of them do it and give my consent for that to be done. So when I think about the cost of the soul of man, and think about the fact that the salvation of the soul is something that was worked out by God from the time that man sinned until the time that Christ came into the world. Then it lets me know something about the value of the soul. But another thing, write down this statement. Souls 
need saving. Souls need saving. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the entrance of sin into the world. I didn't say in Genesis 3, we read about the origin of sin. Brother Lanier had some fine things to say today when he was talking about Satan. That suggested to me and to you that sin did not originate when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that there had been sin before that. But in Genesis 3, sin did enter into the world, and Romans 5 and 12 says that it did. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed, passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So by one man sin entered into the world. 1 John 3 and 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Every accountable person sins and needs salvation from sin, Jesus being the exception to that. Hebrews 4 and 15 tells us that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. All of the rest of us sin. And so, Romans 3 and 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, that's past tense, and come short, that's present tense. All have sinned in the past, and all still do come short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7 and 20 says, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good, and sinneth not. Romans 3 and 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. Folks, sin is universal. And when we say that souls need saving, we mean by that that all of us need to have our souls saved. Sin is not inherited. We did not inherit the guilt of sin. Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel 18 and 20 says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. You see, I'm responsible for my deeds. I did not inherit any of the guilt of Adam's sin or of the sins of anybody who lived after Adam and before I did. My soul needs saving because I became guilty of sin. Write down this third statement. God wants every soul saved. God wants every soul saved. And you can read that on just about every page of your Bible. Turn to anywhere you want to read, and you can find that God is interested in the salvation of souls. First Timothy 2 and 4 says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, talking about God. The word will there means that that's the desire of God. It is God's desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If the ideal will of God were to take place, were to come about, then there would be universal salvation because God wants everybody to be saved. And yet, God cannot save everybody and still be God, a just and righteous God, unless everybody will submit to the will of God and conform to God's great scheme of redemption. Second Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, 
And some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The man said, you'll remember back over in Genesis chapter 3 that God gave a hint of the coming of Christ in the world. He talked about the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of Satan. There was an allusion, I believe, to the coming of our Lord into the world to die upon the cross and then to be raised from the dead and making it possible for man to be forgiven. When God selected Abraham, he told him in Genesis chapter 5 that he would bless him, that he would make his name great, that he would bless those who blessed him, that he would curse those who cursed him, that in, uh, in his seed all of the families of the earth would be blessed. There's a, there's a reference to the coming of Christ into the world to make it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins. And as you read throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, those Old Testament prophets made reference to the fact that one was coming who would redeem the people. So when Jesus was born into the world, he was the Redeemer. It was announced to those shepherds that there will be peace on earth, goodwill to men, referring to the fact that it's now possible for there to be peace between God and man because the one has come who will make it possible for the sins of man to be taken away. The fourth thing that I would like for you to write down is this. God has given the gospel. God has given the gospel. Now, the first sentence you wrote down is, souls are valuable. The second, souls need saving. The third, God wants every soul saved. Now, the fourth is, God has given the gospel. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, the apostle Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now when the passage says, therein is the righteousness of God revealed, it does not mean that in the gospel you learn for the first time of the fact that God is righteous. You can read the Old Testament and learn that God is righteous. There are any number of things in the Old Testament that establish that fact. But when it talks about the fact that therein is the righteousness of God revealed, it's talking about the fact that in the gospel is a plan, God's plan, for making man righteous. Man could not depend upon himself. He could not depend upon his own good doing, his own good deeds, in order to make him righteous. He had to depend upon God's righteousness, that is, God's plan for making man righteous. And it has been said that right here in Romans 1 and 17, you have the title of the book of Romans, the righteousness of God, or God's plan for making man righteous. Notice that this passage says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now we might read that verse like this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the 
power of God unto salvation. And it's all right to do it that way. When we, when we read it that way, we underscore the fact that it is the only power for salvation that there is. And so the writer went ahead to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. There is not one plan of salvation, not one power of God unto salvation to one crowd of people, and then something else that will save somebody else. Everybody who's going to be saved will be saved by the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek, to Jew and Gentile alike. And I really have an idea that Paul intended for the emphasis to be on a different word in that verse. Probably it needs to be read like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Unto everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the gospel is a powerful thing. It is not a power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation, but it is the power. It is the power of God. It's not some weak something. And whenever I read that passage, it makes me wonder, why do my brethren want to involve the church of our Lord in so many things that have nothing to do with the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And why do my brethren stand in pulpits across this land and country of ours and try to think up things to say that will be entertaining, that will cause people to laugh, and never spend much time in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only power there is to save souls. Why is it? Why is it that we today, some at least, seem to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The other day a preacher came by the office, and the name of another preacher came up that he had heard preaching in a meeting recently, and I said, well, he's a good sound man, isn't he? He said, well, I guess he is. He said in the sermon that I heard him preach in a gospel meeting, he alluded to four passages of Scripture and didn't talk about either one of them. Folks, we need to remember that the gospel is powerful. And since the gospel is powerful, I think we need to forget about drama. We need to forget about gymnasiums. And we need to concentrate upon the proclamation of that which is the power of God unto salvation. We said a while ago from Ephesians 3, 10, and 11 that the church was according to the eternal purpose of God. God purposed the church, and God purposed the church for a purpose. That is, he had a reason for building the church. Now you've written down four facts. Souls are valuable. Souls need saving. God wants all souls saved, and God has given us the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It's not the power of God to heal folks. It's not the power of God to create. It's not the power of God to calm the storm or to multiply fishes. Those things are related in a different way. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I raise the question. 
How does the church relate to these four facts? What do all of these things have to do with the purpose for the church? Well, we need to understand that there is no salvation separate and apart from the church because there is no salvation separate and apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. No salvation separate and apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. First Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, you have a beautiful building here, and I congratulate you upon this, this very, very lovely edifice. But you know, one of the most important things about this building is something that you don't see. You can see the walls, and you can see some of the pillars when you go down the halls and outside, but what you don't see is something that's undergirding all of this. What you don't see is that which is underground upon which these pillars and these walls are sitting. That is the ground. The church is said to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, the church did not produce the truth. The truth will produce the church. Luke 8, 11 says, the seed is the word of God. That's the seed of the kingdom. The word of God then will produce the kingdom, which is the church. And then the church upholds, it supports the truth. That's one of the duties and responsibilities of the church. Mark it down. The, the purpose of the church is to save souls. That's not one of the purposes of the church. That's the purpose of the church. Now, there may be a number of different activities in which we engage, but all of these need to be turned in the direction of the salvation of souls. We sometimes talk about the work of the church. We say that the work of the church involves evangelism, edification, and benevolence. But I think that's right. And I reckon that everything that we do needs to be classified in one of those three areas. But that doesn't say that we have a threefold purpose. It's not the purpose of the church to do, uh, to do a benevolent work. The purpose of the church is to save souls. Now, one of the things that helps in the salvation of souls is to be like God, and God is a benevolent God. He makes his son to shine on the evil and good and sends his rain upon the just and upon the unjust. We need to be like God. We need to try to uh, show our love for mankind. And the work of uh, benevolence is a means of doing that. But the purpose of the church is to save souls. A person can no more be saved separate and apart from the church than he can be saved separate and apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the power of God unto salvation. Look again at Acts 20 and 28. Paul said to the elders of Ephesus, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased 
with his own blood. Our Lord shed his blood to purchase something. That passage says he shed his blood to purchase the church. If If I'm going to receive any benefits from the blood of Christ, then I'll have to receive those benefits from that which the blood purchased. I can no more receive the benefits of the blood of Christ separate and apart from that which the blood purchased than I could receive the benefits of money that I might spend for an automobile without getting those benefits out of the automobile. People who talk about the fact that the church is a non-essential haven't read their Bibles. purpose of the church is to save souls. Furthermore, the church is the body of Christ. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the Bible says that God hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Notice that now. The church is his body. Did you ever hear anybody say, oh, a person can be saved without ever coming into the body of Christ. If he can be saved without ever getting into the church, then he can. And Jesus gave his life for it. The purpose of the church is to save souls. And the cost of the church was the death of Christ on Calvary. Whenever I think about the great scheme of redemption and the price that God paid for the church, it ought to make me grateful. Brother Lanier this afternoon talked about those fallen angels, those angels that left their habitation, suggested the possibility that those angels obviously sinned and were reserved in chains of darkness under the judgment of the great day? Did it ever occur to you that there's not one single word in the Bible about any scheme of redemption for those fallen angels? How would you like to be a fallen angel? How would you like to be an angel and be in the position that you're in having sinned? there wouldn't be any possibility of forgiveness. But God has provided a scheme whereby you and I can be forgiven. That ought to make us grateful. Ought to make us realize that when the Bible says that God made him, man, a little lower than the angels, it didn't mean by that that the angels have an advantage over us. There are some ways in which we're inferior to angels there are some ways which we have a great advantage over them. It was for our benefit that our Lord built the church. For our benefit that he died on the cross. For our benefit that he developed the great scheme of redemption. If you're not a Christian, we're going to sing an invitation song, two verses of the song that's been announced. In order for you to be redeemed from your sins, become a member of that church we've talked about tonight, you'll have to put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe him to be the Son of God. 
believe that he has the power to take away your sins. Repent of everything that's wrong. Make up your mind to do right. That's what repentance is. Confess that Jesus is the Christ and be baptized so that your sins will be forgiven. The Lord will add you to his church. Maybe you're a child of God and your life hasn't been what it ought to be and you need to be restored by repenting, confessing your sins, praying to God for forgiveness. You're subject to the invitation. Come right now while we stand and while we sing. Praise your Lord.